the pen is mightier than the sword. My tagline is your voice heard through the written word. That is what I love to provide for my clients, content writing, blog writing, and other social media or marketing initiatives they need in the written word to promote what makes them better and different from others in their profession. Creating a robust narrative that fully captures their why has everything to do with the content that promotes their brand image and area of expertise. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's the Communication Commandments, a presentation of Boston Edits. Now here's your host, Kim Calvi. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to a presentation of Communication Commandments. I am your hostess, Kim Calvi. I'm the owner of Boston Edits. I'd like to thank my producer, Podfather extraordinaire David Yes for making this podcast possible. Yep. Oh, and I would especially like to say thank you to my guest today, attorney Ken Goldberg, for joining us. Hi, Ken. How are you this morning? Hi, good morning. Doing great. Thanks, Kim. Glad to have you here. So now you and I have known each other for a couple of years, but just for our listeners, mm-hmm. why don't we give me a little bit of a background of your law practice. Talk about sure. the areas of law that you focus on. Sure. I've been in practice since, well, I passed the bar in 1988. But I've basically been on my own since 1991, 1992. And when I started, I did pretty much anything that walked in the door. And it's been in the past 10 years or so that I've honed it down to two areas of real estate conveyancing, which is buying and selling, refinancing, and also personal injury litigation, which is something that I really enjoyed when I started practicing at the time with my dad. And so I really enjoyed helping people. I had good success with it. And that's still continued on, you know, to this day has been a, at least 50%, sometimes more uh, part of my, uh, my practice. The personal injury litigation? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good for you. All right. So now because of that, you know, I, 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 whenever I hear personal injury, I immediately think of where we live. We live in New England, where generally there's inclement weather for nine months out of the year. I mean, I'm a skier, so to me, it's not necessarily inclement, but getting to and from work, it can be. And going to the stores, slip and falls, ice on the road, ice on sidewalks, that seems to be, you know, when I think, again, when I think of personal injury, I think that's what comes to mind. But what other personal injury claims do you address? Do you cover? Who are your clients? What kind of claims do they come to you with? Well, it runs the gamut. We certainly do see every year, I don't say every year, but probably every year we see a handful of what we call slip and fall cases, slip and fall on ice or snow. Sometimes there are car accidents that involve slipping on, on slippery conditions. But yeah, so we see these individuals who slip and fall. We see car accident cases. We see dog bite cases. You know, we've seen prescription, bad prescription cases, uh, incorrect dosing of, pres- oh you know, I would say 80% are car accidents and the other 20% sort of run the gamut. I've seen cases involving defective sidewalks, holes in the sidewalk, that type of thing. Bike people are using their bicycles more. So the bikes aren't getting into accidents with each other, but cars are hitting bikes. <laughs> that is every year we see a handful of those cases as well. Okay. All right. So now the the, the 20% that, that, that encompasses dog bites, bicycle accidents, any, anything else like, like, I don't know, like electric equipment, you know, or somebody's lost a thumb or that that kind of thing. There are a lot of workers comp cases and, you know, 
that that happen out there. Although I think that they've actually in the pandemic gone down a fair amount because mm-hmm. people have been working and doing, you know, particularly last year. But in any case, we do sometimes take in those cases. And to be perfectly honest with you, as I said, I am sort of limited. I've limited myself to basically what I call uh, PI or bodily injury cases and the real estate. Workers comp, there are lawyers who just do that, who just specialize in that. And I have a referral relationship with one of the more accomplished firms. And every year I send that lawyer one or two cases of workers comp. And uh, he takes, he does a great job with them. But we have seen, you know, cases like that through the years and the industrial accident type of situations. Right. Okay. All right. Now, can you walk me through, some, let's say I, I have, I've got a personal injury and it was a bike accident. I was riding my bike and a car whipped around the corner, didn't see me, you know, basically, you know, hit my bike and I landed on their windshield. How... I, if somebody's lucid enough to explain all of that to you, what other questions do you need to ask? And like, do you go to the site to take pictures? I mean, how do you gather evidence that's useful in, in a case like that? Sure. In, in many cases like that, I mean, I've had many clients who are in the hospital. I recall one elderly fellow who was in a single car accident, but he was ran off, but he was basically run off the road by another car. Uh, and that actually is a case that he can bring against his own insurance company under what they call underinsured or uninsured car. So another car caused him to drive into a tree. Mm -hmm. I went to the hospital and and visited him there and basically got all the information. I took some photographs of him um, Mm -hmm. in his banged up situation. Bike case, I had one last year. It's still an active case. I went to meet the client at his house because he was pretty, you know, he was pretty banged up. He really wasn't in a condition to travel. And on the way to his house, I stopped at the scene and took photographs. So we get, we have some forms we need the clients to fill out. Every client has to sign a a contingent fee agreement, which simply means it's a contract between me and the client that says, once we get a settlement, we get paid, but we get paid until we get a settlement, which is, Mm -hmm. say that's not unique for me, but it is the way it's done in the personal injury area. You Mm -hmm. don't get paid until you get compensation for your client. That's typically the case. Okay. All right. And now can you describe some of the injuries that you've seen? Some of them that have been, you know, like, I don't want to say outrageous or severe, perhaps that just, you know, clearly there's a case here. Yeah. You know, a lot of car accidents are what we call the soft tissue case, which is whiplash. And, you know, it depends. Some whiplashes can be cause people to stay out of work for, you know, weeks or months. Some they're back at work after a week or two. It sort of depends on what they do and how they reacted. There are the slip and fall cases, interestingly, often result in a a broken wrist as people try to break their fall with their hands, perhaps broken ankle. I've had, I've had both of those cases. In one case, the broken wrist is just, I've had a few like that, but one that I'm recalling, a woman was in a dance class at a fancy spa out in the Western part of the state. And she basically slipped and fell on the sweaty floor in the dance class. And as a result, broke her wrist when she tried to break her fall. And our theory was that they allowed too many people in the class, causing the floor to become too sweaty. And it was an interesting theory. And the uh, insurance company actually bought it. And we got her, you know, I think, you know, we got her, I don't know if it was 25, I think we got her like 25 or $30,000. Great recovery, which was really good as well. She had a great surgeon. Last year, or maybe it was about two years ago, we had a case involving, again, a slip and fall in a 
parking lot, a woman went to her veterinarian and uh, as she was getting out of her car, walking to the front door, she slipped on an icy patch in the parking lot. And yeah, she broke her ankle. She was in a lot of pain. And mm-hmm. she actually called into the veterinarian's office and said, I'm out here in your parking lot. I just, I think I broke my ankle. And they literally waited like 15 or 20 minutes before they went out to help her, threw down some salt. And uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, and frankly speaking, that was, she called me. She's like, I don't know if this is a case, but those people were real jerks. And I want to, you know, I want, I want to make a statement and or know how jerky they were. And, uh, and that's honestly a lot of what happens uh, with the clients. I'm not saying that a quick apology and a caring attitude will necessarily prevent a claim, but it might because a lot of clients call me after these slip and fall cases and are um, just upset with how they've been treated by the uh, property owner. In any case, she, I went to the scene of that slip and fall, like, maybe probably a day or two after she called me, which is maybe a week or two or maybe even three after the accident happened. She had already mm-hmm. had surgery, I think, at that point on her ankle. Oh, okay. Yeah, by then the snow had melted, but it left what was the condition of the parking lot, which was sort of like, not a, not a pothole, but mm-hmm. a large area that was clearly a, a situation where puddles were going to form. And mm-hmm. then you have puddles, you have ice that forms on top of it. And once we showed that to the insurance company, it really was almost like a question of how much money is this case worth, not whether or not mm-hmm. the property owner was at fault. That mm-hmm. really told the tale. So yeah, it's really important to get out to the scene. Just for as a lawyer, mm-hmm. you're telling a story. And if you don't know and you can't envision it yourself, what happened, it's impossible mm-hmm. to tell the story. You have to actually see. You have to see your client. You have to see where it happened. And I do that. Not in every case, but in many cases, even car accident cases, I'll go out and take a look at the intersection to get a feel for what it is my client is telling me. Hmm. Okay. All right. That's I, I would think that if you're going to present on your client's behalf and, and try to get a settlement for them, that at a minimum covers their medical expenses. Yeah, you have to be very good at telling the story and, and, and being able to present all of the detail and the time frame, the timeline and, and all of that important information. You mentioned that like wrong medication or that the, the label for a dosage was mislabeled. Now, this was that, like, how, do you, how do you handle that one? This was like 15 years ago or maybe even 20 years ago. A woman came, it was a long time ago. I think I'm, I'm assuming that the pharmacies have gotten better at making sure that this doesn't happen anymore, but she got like, <laughs> double the dose of whatever medication she was supposed to get. And as a result, she had trouble uh, breathing to the point where it's possible that she might've, I'm not sure if she would have suffocated. We don't really know, but she was basically cat- mm-hmm. leading toward a catatonic state, I think. And, you know, listen, luckily she, someone was with her called the ambulance. The ambulance came, gave her some antihistamine or some Benadryl and she was fine. Uh, mm-hmm. I think go to the hospital to check her out. And, you know, she was in fear of death, arguably, say for 10 to 20 seconds or maybe longer, but no more. Mm -hmm. And she came to me very, you know, very upset. I could have died. I was on death's door. And I said, well, look, you know, we don't get you compensation for what could have happened. You're certainly entitled to compensation for your emotional distress. Okay. Mm -hmm. That period of time during which maybe you thought you were dying but it was only, it was less than a minute. So it wasn't a big case, but we did get her something. And, you know, part of my job 
as a personal injury attorney is yes, I advocate very zealously for my clients and I push hard and keep pushing and are persistent in trying to get as much money as I can from the insurance companies. And then the other part of the job is to set expectations appropriately uh, for my, we're, you're entitled to compensation for, you know, your pain and suffering, your lost wages, your future mm-hmm. lost wages, your future pain and suffering, your medical bills and certain other out-of-pocket expenses, your emotional distress. And, you know, all of that gets weighed against ultimately what a jury would award mm-hmm. that person in court if it got to that stage. That is the ultimate arbiter, the trier of fact. You know, we just sort of have to Given my experience, I have an idea as to what a good range of settlement is, and we just have to be careful not to not to necessarily trust that a jury is going to be generous, uh, right, or sympathetic, right, right. Yeah. They, yeah. you know, juries are like you said, they're New Englanders. You walk into a court of law saying, "I slipped <laughs> on ice," the juries would be like, "So did I," and I didn't file a lawsuit, or I was more <laughs> careful. So, you yeah, know, we've got. You know, yeah. no one wants to get injured. People are, are, you know, we get compensation for them. And the way, you know, I think that because I do a good job is I sort of know how far to push it without putting the client's entire case at risk, possibly having a jury say, gee, we're sorry that happened, but it's not really worth as much as you think it's worth and or mm-hmm. may not be worth anything. So, you know, my, my, my experience comes into play in sort of getting what I think is a fair settlement for my clients. And that's invariably 95% of the cases settle without having to file a lawsuit. Well, that's good. That's good. So now you said that you you wanted to obviously, advocate, you do advocate vigorously and zealously on behalf of your Absolutely. client, but then it sounds like there's there's got to be a little bit of diplomacy in there, like you said, because if it does get as far as being you know tried in front of a jury, you want to make sure that you get the client what they need and that you don't want the, you want to have, I guess a sympathetic jury. So there is some diplomacy involved. And again, I would think that that goes very back to the very beginning of good storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, part of everyone has their own style, I guess, you know, everyone has personal Mm -hmm. style and maybe there are some lawyers who like to pound on the table and yell and scream and maybe it works for them. You know, I know that when I deal with those lawyers I generally get turned off, but what we do is 95% of our cases are dealing with insurance adjusters who have Mm -hmm. of cases and may very well be getting yelled at by other lawyers, although I would think probably not. And ultimately, if we can be, I don't want to say aggressive, but polite, not get into personalities, talk about the case. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. The most, you know, that will serve our clients the best. You know, listen, and there are adjusters who ultimately are not reasonable or we think just don't quite understand how yeah. it happened. I mean, mm-hmm. for example, recently we're getting adjusters with their insured, their person who, you know, they're representing went through a stop sign or pulled out into the main street in car accidents. And they're saying, well, if your client had only uh, taken certain steps, he could have avoided the accident. And, you know, that's their job, I suppose, to make up stuff like that. But it's sort of ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. If someone's going through a stop sign, what am I supposed to do to avoid the accident? I mean, maybe, um, you know, uh, a great, incredible driver, uh, but that's like from the movies. You know, you see people drive around cars that go through stop signs. That's not doesn't happen in real life. And yeah. real life, things happen so quickly that you don't even know what happened until mm-hmm. it's over. 
Yep. I've got a question for you. I want to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. You talked about emotional distress, you know, like the client that you had who couldn't breathe for a few seconds. And, you know, she said she was on death's door and one thing and another. But how do you, when you present a case like that, how do you quantify damages for emotional distress? It's really, it's, ver- it's, I don't know, it's, it's not impossible, but it's not a quantifiable number in the sense mm-hmm. No objective, there's nothing objective about it. You can't sort of plug it into an algorithm and come up with a figure. And that's where, you know, your experience comes into play in terms of what have other cases for similar types of injuries. Okay. But listen, every client is different. Some clients, I had one client who was in a car accident. He didn't suffer any physical injury, but he went to therapy because he had post-traumatic stress and we got him a decent settlement. We got him a decent settlement, which, you know, as long as he complained of a physical manifestation of that emotional injury, such as inability to sleep, loss of appetite, some things like that. We were, you know, we got them, we got them some money. But yeah, I mean, in terms of emotional distress, the it goes sort of hand in hand with almost how severe the injury is. More severe the injury, even anyone can relate to the fact that if you've got a broken ankle and you're, you know, on a wheelchair for in a wheelchair or on crutches for a few months. That's a lot more stressful than than something that is maybe, you know, where there's no broken bones. Right. You know, but what's coming into play a lot lately are concussion cases. Oh, so no one really gave them much thought, you know, oh, yeah, he banged his head and so on and so forth. No big deal. But now with concussion be- becoming much more of a known medical diagnosis, yeah. Yeah, that can really cause a lot of emo- distress because people sure. through weeks and months of sort of like, living in a cloud and able to do what they were able to do. I had one client who uh, was rear-ended, claimed a concussion, claimed loss of memory, loss of short-term memory. And Mm -hmm. sure enough, you know, we were able to get the medical documentation to support that. And ultimately the insurance company didn't see it like we saw it, but they agreed to arbitrate the case. And we convinced the arbitrator that- Mm -hmm. His concussion injury and his loss of memory impacted him, not just for a couple of weeks, but for nearly, you know, for a couple of years, really. And oh, wow. Okay. That's took, significant. took a long time for him to get back to sort of where he was. And even mm-hmm. he explained it. He never really got back to where he was. He compensated. He learned how to live with his new injury, his his. Mm-hmm. Mental capacity and how exactly his way to remember things. He Mm -hmm. learned to take notes. He learned to make lists. He learned to, you know, adapt, adopt and get through the day. And uh, he did make some progress, but wasn't perfect. And we arbitrated that case and it did a great result for him. Actually, So now if you participate in arbitration, what about mediation? You said that some of your cases, a lot of your cases don't even go to trial anymore. So I would assume then that between not going to trial and arbitration, there'd be some mediation activity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, many cases settle, we negotiate settlements. Many, mm-hmm. let's say larger cases, it's, it can be helpful to either do what we call a pre-suit mediation without even having filed a lawsuit. The parties will agree to negotiate using a mediator. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can happen after you file a lawsuit. It's usually when you're about to schedule a trial, someone says, hey, would you be willing to mediate this? And mediation is basically, you know, a controlled and organized discussion, a controlled and organized negotiation. And it's very helpful for the client to be able to sit there and tell their story to the adjuster. And mm-hmm. 
that the client gets personalized to the adjuster and mm -hmm. uh, it's a cathartic experience for the client. And that way we can, you know, we usually maximize settlement value again, whether it's pre-suit or after a lawsuit. And, and then of course there are arbitrations where you may not see eye to eye with mm -hmm. the adjuster on the case. And instead of going through the expense, because lawsuits are, can involve a lot pricey. of legal time yeah. uh, for the insurance company than say an arbitration. So instead of going through all that expense, we agree to arbitrate and have that person who was the mediator in the last case. Now he's the arbitrator and he's the decider. He or she is mm -hmm. the decider of fact and mm -hmm. uh, is over once he or she makes a decision. And, and it's a, I don't know, it's not necessarily informal, but it's certainly less formal than a trial and sure. takes, takes less time mm -hmm. uh, overall. And, and again, a great way for the client to feel like they've been able to tell their story to uh, someone other than me who they've told it to a hundred times already. So Right, right. And so what's the success rate with that when you go to mediation or arbitration? I'll tell you, I've only had the, in 30 years of doing this, I've, I can only recall one or two mediations that didn't result in a settlement. Uh, really? Yeah. And Good uh, average. Good for you. And, you know, the arbitrations, for the most part, successful. You know, I remember one where we, we were not successful and I've never gone back to use that arbitrator again and out of self-respect, but uh, we do. And one thing in arbitration, which is that you can agree ahead of time, say, you know, if we think there's a certain range of value, the insurance company will say, well, on the low side, we'll pay no less than say $5,000, but on the high mm -hmm. side, we'll pay say no less than 50,000. So if you get zero, you still get 5,000. If you get a hundred thousand, you only get 50,000. 50. Gotcha. And, okay. You know, mm -hmm. so that's a high low and we can, I don't know, minimize our exposure or risk in that sense. And that's mm -hmm. been common in arbitrations. Okay. So, you know, we, it's called ADR, alternative dispute resolution, mediation, great ways, particularly in, in this, in the days of the pandemic where you can find a lawsuit, but you're not going to see the inside of a courtroom for God knows how long. Right, right. Well, exactly. So now, You've mentioned, you know, you represent, zealously represent your client. There's some dipl diplomacy involved when you're dealing with insurance adjusters and the other side. And, you know, and obviously a, a good way to present your case is to good storytelling. So now when you approach a case, you must have, you know, comprehensive intake forms, which allow you just to gather the information, correct? I mean, you must use tools like that to then explore talking to the client to really get the full picture. Is that sure. right? You know, we do have, we have the basic intake forms. It's absolutely right. As I said, the client has to sign a fee agreement. They sign mm -hmm. consents. I take, I take a lot of notes in the beginning of the case. You know, as most lawyers will tell you, most personal injury lawyers, you basically make your money in the first 10 to 20 minutes of meeting with the client. In other words, based on what they tell you in that meeting, you either okay. take the case or not. And listen, mm -hmm. I invariably, most cases, I don't know what the percentage is. I mean, I have turned down some. If that client went through the stop sign, I say, look, there's not much I can do for you. Or if that client is yep. left in front of another vehicle, you know, the burden is on them. Not much I can do for you. But invariably, through that meeting, that first meeting, which can take sometimes upwards of an hour, sometimes longer, we get a lot of information. And frankly speaking, that's when the information is most fresh in their mind. We do, you know, depending on the case and some clients are better than others. We, 
oftentimes recommend they take notes. How has this injury impacted your life? So they come to me and they say, I can't work. Okay, fine. What else can't you do that you used to do before? Housework. Can you cook? Can you know do hiking that you used to do? You know, you know. Right. How detrimentally impacted has your life been? The the life impact, right? A lot of people have grandkids. They can't pick up their grandkids now because they have a a back injury. That that type of thing. They can't enjoy life in the way they they used to. I had one client that she couldn't ride a bike, and then it came out that she really didn't own a bike. But that you know. Wow. All right. So I better. Yeah. What was she going to do with that? Go buy one. I don't know. Maybe she owned a bike, but she'd used it like once, like two years earlier or something. I don't know. But Um, we do go into those, what we call the lifestyle impact questions. And sometimes, sometimes, again, it, it takes months, usually, if not sometimes a year or more for a client to reach what we call a medical end result. And so mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know what that life impact is until we're six to nine months into the case. And uh, right. that, but yeah. we, we do talk to the client about that all the time. Okay. So you're in regular communication then with your clients too. It's not just this, they call you, they fill out the intake form. You have a one hour conversation with them because it's still fresh in their minds. You want to gather as many facts and data as you possibly can. You're there. Like you said, time goes on to kind of develop, to see what sort of uh, repercussions they've suffered. Right. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we need to to stay in touch with people, Mm -hmm. uh, find out not only what their medical treatment is and where their medical treatment is going. You know, if they get medical bills, we want to get copies of the bills. And at some point after they reach an medical M result, we really get to work very earnestly collecting all of the bills and records, sending out a demand to the insurance company. And, you know, listen, they may not hear from us for a month or two, but that's because we're doing our work mm-hmm. report. But, you know, we usually let them know that we've sent in a demand and we give the insurance company about a month to respond. There's no hard and fast rule. And uh, we find that, you know, we're, we're patient. We don't take the first offer. We make fair, but aggressive demands. We want to show some strength and uh, mm-hmm. we're willing to play along with the insurance company. Their game is to hold on to the money as long as possible. We do, we're not going to stay hanging there forever without filing a lawsuit, but we can be pretty patient and ultimately waiting two, three, four, five months of negotiations, literally going mm-hmm fourth, maybe better than filing a lawsuit and waiting 24 months before you even get to a, a pretrial conference um, right. where mm-hmm. negotiations will begin in earnest again. Okay. All right. So now tell me, who is your ideal client? I mean, we've talked about some types of accidents and that sort of thing, but uh, sure. a particular type of client. Well, you know, anyone who's been injured and it's at the, because it's the fault of someone else, basically, or something. I do. I have had people co- come to me with the single car accident cases, but it was just them who drove off the road. Th- that's not a case, you know. But I'll be honest with you, Kim. I-, I can't say that I've turned down too many cases through the years. A lot of, I don't say a lot of lawyers, but there are lawyers who just are not interested in the soft tissue cases where there's no broken bones. We'll take them, and uh, sometimes we, sometimes you know, sometimes we get. Anywhere between four, five, six thousand dollars. Sometimes we twenty-five thousand dollars for a soft tissue case where there's no broken bones. It's it really depends on the impact on the client, 
and mm-hmm. of the accident sometimes and the injury. You know, you mentioned, you know, who's the ideal client. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. I'm gonna, not necessarily a better question, but a different question is who's the ideal referral source. And yeah, okay. a lot of lawyers who don't do personal injury are, okay. I get cases through them. Just yeah. as important. Good. Glad you mentioned yeah. it. And, and it, aside from the clients who I've helped in the past, I, I get, I would say the majority are clients uh, who I've helped in the past are refer their friends, family, and so on. The other big referral source are lawyers who, listen, I've had lawyers who do personal injury, but they don't want to handle the soft tissue case. It's not yeah. big enough. It's not big enough for them. And so, you know, I've, I've handled cases for lawyers like that. I've handled cases for estate planning lawyers or business lawyers or divorce lawyers. They don't do PI. It can be, I don't know, shall we say, labor intensive. And well, there's certainly a lot of documentation, not just from the very beginning, but all throughout. Yeah, there is. And there's a ton of dealing with medical personal information, medical information. Making sure their bills are paid and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. A lot of T's to cross and I's to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I've got a system and we've been doing it for, as I say, a long time. We've got it, we're pretty good at tying up all the loose ends and getting a fair settlement. Very good. Okay. All right. So now, so it sounds to me based on this discussion, Ken, is that you've got a dynamic view of everything that's involved in a personal injury case, soft tissue, broken bones, dealing with insurance adjusters, making sure the client feels that they've been listened to and heard and their story is told effectively and that they feel humanized and that they're not just, you know, just treated like a complaint, but like a human with a, who's actually suffering from an injury. Um, and that requires patience, dis- diplomacy, zealous advocacy, certainly. And like you said, a position of strength and not being too quick to jump the gun. I think that probably is all, you know, it sounds to me like because that's a lot. That's a lot of people skills, a lot of soft skills, if you will, that probably some attorneys, you know, possess some or, you know, more more of one than not the other. But it sounds like you have a pretty balanced approach. Well, um, I, w- so, I would agree. I would say I've actually gotten better at that through the years. You know, when I was young, I would, I would get ticked off by insurance adjusters who didn't see my case my way. Mm-hmm. And through the years, I've, I don't know, matured, gotten a little bit more wisdom, more experience, mm-hmm. keeping my eye on the prize more so mm-hmm. basically as, you know, as I said, just pounding on the table and, and also probably a little better at uh, working with clients and making sure that they are heard and, uh, and that they're, you know, they really, it's a stressful time for them. Early Mm -hmm. on, this is a stressful time and um, they're really confused. They really don't know what to expect. And so we, again, try to uh, offer that guidance. It sounds like, yeah, a lot of times times their car is total. What do they do about that? And, you know, we basically help them through all of these various aspects of the case. Occasionally, there is interaction with the insurance company, or if we file a lawsuit, most definitely there's going to be interaction with the sure. insurance company's lawyer, and we mm-hmm. prepare them for all of that and let them know what to expect. I, I can't tell you how many times I've prepped clients for depositions and then, you know, told them exactly what to expect, and then the other lawyer sits there and starts off, and it's not word for word, but it's my client mm-hmm. is of sitting there nodding like, yeah, I answered this question two hours ago with my lawyer. So I know, you know, I know mm-hmm. this. And that's uh, great. That's good. You don't just, you don't just say, okay, we'll tell your story. I mean, you, if you prepare them for a deposition, you're coming at it because you know the kind of questions that the other side is going to ask. So with, 
whether it be a deposition or just a statement, which Mm. are not necessarily that frequent, but occasionally we will give a statement to an insurance adjuster. Maybe if we feel like the insurance adjuster is acting in good faith and not just sort of fishing for information that they really want to try to better understand where our client is coming from, we will, we will do that. And uh, that's good. That's yeah. important insight, I would think. Yeah. I mean, it, there was one very recently where the a bike, bike case where the driver of the other vehicle basically drove, turned right into his driveway, but in front of my client, the bicyclist who was also on the street. And the the point is, if you're turning, you need to make sure you're not turning into or in front of another vehicle, whether it be a bike or, and um, I'm not sure what he told his insurance company, but we were willing to give his insurance company a statement early on in that case to explain exactly what happened and Mm -hmm. why client, why their insured was at fault. The Mm -hmm. client in that case is very articulate and experienced bicyclist and was, and, and of course I prepared him, but he did a great job. And literally 10 minutes after having that statement with him and the insurance company, I got mm-hmm. a adjuster basically saying, yes, we'll accept hundred percent liability for our insured on this case. Wow. And uh, yeah, I didn't expect to call that quickly. Yeah. Um, that must be some kind of a record. It, it probably was. I don't know, but uh, you know, we, we prepped but, him but well. To me that- but to me, that seems like you prepared your clients so well that you know, and you, they gave a statement early on. It was crystal clear. That's what saved this case, your client, a lot of time, a lot of anguish, one right. sort or another, and just wrapped it up pretty quickly and effectively. Well, it's, it's now it's just a question of what are his damages. He, you know, I think he, yep. he was severely banged up, and he's. I'm not sure he's still treating, but we're mm-hmm. we're now sort of getting to the point where we're trying to arrive at negotiations. In other words. We've agreed that the question in this case is how much is the case worth? And right, right. We're going to think it's worth more than the insurance company. And therein, that argument is a lot better to be in versus who's at fault or how much did my client uh, contribute? It, yeah, you know, yeah. How much did he contribute to his own injury? And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if you want to hear another sort of war story, but it is an interesting case where a guy went to. I went on, what's that, Angie's List or one of those things. To He went to sell a laptop, right? Somehow or another, he found these guys who wanted to buy his laptop and they were to meet at a certain place. It turns out they didn't want to buy his laptop. They wanted to steal his laptop. And <laughs> I don't know, they jumped him, took his laptop. And for some reason, he jumped back. He jumped sort of into their car while they were in the process of trying to steal his laptop. And got kicked out of their car. They kicked him, hit him, jumped back <laughs> into their car. And, and it was really an interesting series of events. And the question was, you know, whether there was an accident, because that's what insurance covers. And mm-hmm. you know, you get into a fight with someone at a bar. And you know you're in a fight. You punch your <laughs> lights out. You punch their <laughs> lights out. You might have insurance, but they're probably not going to cover that claim because you intentionally punch someone in the face. Um, That was no accident. That took some premeditation, I suppose. Right. And so, you know, the car insurance company, we we actually had to do a fair amount of research. And there are a lot of cases on this. You know, it's interestingly enough as to what is an accident and what is an accident under these circumstances. And uh, we just sort of had to suss out enough facts to 
to establish that there was some sort of accident involved here. Honestly, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what we did or said, but it was enough to get a decent settlement for this guy, even though he was crazy enough to jump into a car. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With these people <laughs> and, and they intentionally beat the crap out of him. But, you know, there was still some aspect of an accident. I think maybe they were driving away while he was hanging on to the side of a door or something like that. Um, I'm getting a strong visual of this. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You know, for listen, a laptop. For a laptop. Not a bag of diamonds. A laptop. For a laptop, which probably, yeah, becomes obsolete like a year later or something or something. Right. Actually, that case was referred to me by a lawyer. He, I think he basically got a phone call out of the blue and he's like, I'm not doing that, but uh, I know who might be able to. And, you know, we call that basically making lemonade out of lemons. I mean, you know, we, mm-hmm. from time to time. And, you know, there's, it's, we get a lot of garden variety things. A lot mm-hmm. of, sounds like it. occasionally we are challenged with these interesting fact patterns. Mm-hmm. It, well, it sounds like it, but it, it, thank goodness they're interesting, right? Yeah, you know, it does keep the job fresh and yep, gets us back to the law books and tries to f- try to figure out, you know, when did this happen before and how did a judge decide this case? Mm-hmm. And or if they did decide it and the result wasn't good for us, how is our case different so that we should basically, you know, get a better result, get a better result. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, I'd love to have you back on the show to tell more war stories because the way you tell a story is excellent. It's entertaining and it's full of facts. So, and I'm sure you don't even mean to be entertaining, but I thought it was great. So I'd love to have you back on the show, Ken. I appreciate that. Thanks, Kim. This was fun. Yeah, of course. So, but before we sign off, how can our listeners find you? Um, Sure. Well, my office, as I like to say, the desk where I have a computer is in Brockton. We handle cases throughout Massachusetts. I don't know. I have a website. What's the URL for that? What's that? What's your website address? Yeah, yeah, worldwideweb.kglegal.com. So my initials, okay. Goldberg, KG Legal. But the oh. office phone number? 508-588-8300. Okay, and your email address, please? Sure, Ken at kglegal.com. K-E-N at kglegal.com. Okay, very good. Pretty All simple. right. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today. It was great talking to you. Always nice to see you as well. And my name is Kim Calvi. I'm the owner of Boston Edits. This has been a presentation of Boston Edits, Communication Commandments by Kim Calvi with my guest, Ken Goldberg, um, who is a client of mine. So my tagline is your voice heard through the written word. Ken and I have collaborated before to get some documents set for him that he can use in his office. And that's a service that I provide as well. So we look forward to hearing from all of you about this podcast. Uh, You can get into touch with Ken with the information that he just shared. And you can look for me as well. My email address is Kim at bostonedits.com. My URL is www.bostonedits.com. Thank you so much for listening today. Have a great day, everyone.